Hi guys, and welcome back to the You Don't Wanna Know podcast. Welcome back to part two of the Town of Ada, Oklahoma podcast. So I hope you guys listened to the first one because if you didn't, I don't understand what is wrong with you. You need some help. Um, Just kidding, but like seriously, go back and listen to that first one because that has a lot of information. Now, normally at the beginning of the episodes, I talk about a movie or a show that I watched, but I am recording this one right after I recorded the last one, so I have no new information for you, just still the very sad, sad news that 30 Rock is no longer on Netflix, so... Moment of silence for that. All right, that's all the silence it needs because it's a show. Um, unfortunately, still got the same voice, still got the same mic, still have no idea what's happening. So I will just do a quick recap. So Debbie, Debbie Carter, she was the first uh, girl that was murdered. Unfortunately. She was murdered in her apartment, and there is two men in prison. That's Ron and Dennis. And then you have the Denise Haraway case, who she was murdered, and there is Carl and Tommy in prison. And Carl and Tommy were convicted before Dennis and Ron. At this point, um, and everything just seems very, very fishy. Now, for part two. Let's get uncomfortable. So, at this point, Tommy has tried to go for parole. Well, I guess, actually, I don't know how long of the time it's been because the timelines get a little fuzzy at this point, but Tommy has applied for parole three times, and every single time he will not admit that he is guilty. And if you guys don't know much about the parole process, you know that you don't know. um, I guess I should probably explain it to you then. You file for parole once it's your time, and it helps a lot when you admit to what you did wrong, and you say you're changed, you're reformed, Um, but Tommy won't do that, and that hurts his chances of getting parole pretty badly, but he just, he knows he didn't do it, so he will not lie and say that he did it, even though that means that he's probably never going to get paroled. I don't remember if I said this, but Ron was actually convicted and put on death row. So not great situation for Ron. And because he was convicted of a capital offense, he was able to start filing for appeals right away. So he jumped on that right away. And he filed his first appeal as a Brady violation. Now, I figured out what a Brady violation is, so I'll help you guys out if you didn't know, because I didn't know. That is when the prosecutor... The prosecution didn't turn over um, all of the exculpatory evidence. And exculpatory evidence basically means that it's evidence that could help the defense. Um, So the first thing they didn't turn over was the polygraph test. Oh my gosh, guys, I was staring at that for an embarrassingly amount, long amount of time because I could not figure out what that was. Polygraph test. And you know, normally... A lot of people don't like to use polygraphs because they're bogus, but this polygraph test kind of turned into a confession tape or an interrogation tape, I should say, because he didn't confess to anything, and it was two hours long. So 
that was pretty good evidence that could have been turned over, but they didn't do it. And the other piece of evidence was Ricky Joe Simmons' confession tapes. That's right. Ricky Joe Simmons came in and actually confessed to the tapes. And while Ron was in jail, um, his sister was going and visiting her, him, excuse me, and the psychiatrist pulled the sister to a side, and she was like, you know, I finally figured it out. Ron has an alter ego named Ricky Joe Simmons, and he blames the murder on Ricky Joe. Just the same, and there's so many parallels, as Tommy and um, Carl, who blame Odell, even though Odell's a real person, and Ricky Joe Simmons is a real person. On September 24th, 1987, Ricky admitted to killing, um, killing Debbie. And they dismissed the tapes, and even Ron's lawyer dismissed the tapes, um, because it was very clear that Ricky Joe Simmons was a not-well man. But finding out this, um, just completely messed up Ron. He freaked out, and... He just, it just he was already mentally unstable because he has a mental illness. So this just really, really, really pushed him. And it was so clear that he was not doing okay in jail. And his sister, God bless her heart, she knew he needed to come out. And she was working hard. She was working so hard to get him out. So the, the second appeal was an appeal for ineffective counsel. He was competent to stand trial or the lawyer didn't say that he wasn't inco- wasn't like incompetent to stand trial or whatever um he was in a check cashing trial years prior and he was actually found to be incompetent or not competent enough to stand trial and guys it's official competent no longer means anything to me because i've said it too many times so This was very, very, very big for them because how could you be competent enough to stand on a murder trial but not competent enough to stand in a check-cashing trial? Doesn't make any sense. So that was the one other thing. And then the second other thing, and not that this matters, the lawyer was blind and he had someone helping him. And he could do his job, but he could not help Ron. Ron was too big of a case. Maybe they just didn't get along because that happens. Sometimes people just don't mesh well. It doesn't matter. That doesn't mean either one of them is a bad person. Their personalities just don't jive, I guess. And that seems to be what was happening. Um, The man just didn't have the patience for it. And he actually begged the judge to take him off the case because he couldn't do it. And they actually won that second appeal. Now, Dennis, like I said, he didn't get the death penalty, so he ran his one appeal appeal with a lawyer, and it did nothing. But he knew, obviously, he knew that he was not guilty, so he did it himself. He appealed his own case, because he is a smart frickin' cookie. He did not have a lawyer with him, and he did it. Now, Dennis, he watched a bunch of early morning shows or something like that about DNA and finding evidence in DNA. And he did study and research, 
researching and reading books to find more and more about DNA and how it could potentially help him. And that's how he found out about the Innocence Project. And the Innocence Project is basically these lawyers and some researchers and stuff like that come together to help people who say that they're innocent. And this is not an easy process just because everyone and their mother thinks they're innocent in prison, even the people who are guilty. And they know they're guilty. So they constantly get so many files and so many people asking them to help them in their case. So they really have to be thorough before they take on a case. But they said that Dennis was so well organized and just so thorough that it was very easy to choose him and go through his information because he was just so helpful. So the Innocence Project responded and were like, yeah, let's do it. Let's go. Let's get you out of there. So they actually paid for the DNA testing. And five days before Ron was supposed to be executed, he gets a stay. And his case was reviewed by the Supreme Court. And turns out his mother was his alibi that night. And the police did not reveal that at all. And it was said, allegedly, this is hearsay, whatever, that the police did not try him for the longest time because his mother was his alibi and his mom was such such a huge part of the community. She was a very um, honest, church-going woman. And he knew, the people knew that if Ron's mom said, nope, she, he was with me, we rented a movie and watched movies, that no one, everyone would believe the mom and Ron wouldn't be in jail. So that's why they waited until Ron's mom passed away, which is a horrible, horrible thing. Unfortunately, well, I guess fortunately, I should say first, Ron's mom journaled every single day of her life and had books and books of different journals and diaries that she kept. But of course, that journal was never found and we're pretty sure it was put in evidence and was just lost. So it was never brought to case. Glenn Gore was the only one who said that he saw Ron at that bar last night. So that was the only ground that they had to stand on. So they got the letter back from the labs and the test came back negative for Ron and Dennis's DNA. 12 years, 12 years later, in 1999, April 15th, a hearing was set for both Ron and Dennis, and they were set free. It was a very, very, very emotional time because, I don't know if you guys remember, Dennis had a daughter. He didn't allow his daughter to see him for 12 years in prison because he didn't want her to see him in that setting or to have to be exposed to the things in prison. So at that hearing, 12 years later, for the first time, he saw his 24-year-old daughter in 12 freaking years. And you could, like, even hearing the case, watching the case, seeing the case, you just feel some type of way when they see each other for the first time. It was so beautiful. So as amazing as that is, you still go back to the question, who killed Debbie and what are you guys going to do to figure out the answer to that question? Now, everyone and their mother was trying to figure this out. Debbie's um, 
cousin, Christy, who was a very big part of Debbie's life, she actually started doing um, criminal justice classes. Um, she became a teacher, or like I think it was a professor. Well, yeah, it was a professor in college on what's messed up and what needs to get fixed with the, the judicial system. She also started a support group for people wrongfully convict, convicted. So she started helping out people like Ron and like Dennis. And in uh, 2002, Dennis and Ron's civil case was totally resolved because they put in a civil case um, to be compensated for what happened to them for 12 years in prison for nothing, for doing nothing. So it's important that they got that. And it was finally done in 2002, and they were cleared. Done. They won the case. It was great. So Cheryl Pilot was their attorney, and Dan Clark was their PA. And a PA is personal, a private investigator, and he was actually going around trying to find evidence that was never, like, used in court and all this stuff, and he had a very hard time. Apparently, he would rent a new car every single time. He wouldn't stay in the same place because he just did not feel safe in Ada. The police were supposed to be looking for new suspects, but the lead detective believes that they let out the men that did it. He still believed that it was Ron and Dennis. But not everyone believed that it was Ron and Dennis, luckily. And some people started digging back into the old evidence and the old trial, and I guess it didn't sit well with a lot of people that there was only one person that actually said that they saw Ron at the coach light. So they started to look into a little person known as Glenn Gore. And they decided to test him for DNA because you know what? Or test his DNA because you know what? He was in freaking jail. They compared his DNA to the semen at the at the crime scene, and they found it was consistent with Glenn's 17 years later. And somehow he heard about this, which doesn't make any sense to me, and he escaped from freaking prison. Now, Glenn had been in prison for a while. He was not a good dude, which is weird that his testimony was so strong at court, even though he was not a good dude. Apparently, he was on, like, a work release um, job site or something like that uh, for the city with the prison, or however you want to look at that, and he heard on one of the police officers' radio scanner and just, like, fled or something like that, something along those lines. It's a little hazy, because the person who was in charge was very corrupt. He basically told the prisoners, I don't care what you do, I don't care if you do drugs, I don't care if you do women, I don't care if you're a horrible person, as long as you come back to work on time and you share whatever bad stuff you're doing with me. So, essentially, Glenn heard on the radio somehow that his DNA was ran, and that he was a match, and he ran. He ran for eight days, but he was caught. And he, for some reason, just wanted to get out of the county and go to, like, the state and get charged there or something. Something weird, but it did not work out for him, so that's great. Now, Glenn and Debbie went to school together. They knew each other their entire school career, but they were in very, very different friend groups, and they were not friends. That was made very clear. 
I'm sorry for any background noise you guys might hear. My boyfriend and I are deciding to completely nerd out this month. We are back to playing Pokemon Go, which, like, no shame. And now we're watching Harry Potter again, so that's what you were hearing in the background. So I apologize for that. My bad. I closed the door. Hopefully you won't hear it again. So like I was saying before, Debbie and Glenn were not friends at all. So that was kind of a stinky part of his case, how he said that she asked him to save her, but they weren't friends. There was actually an incident where Debbie came and found her car windshield wiper was ripped off, and she found out that it was Glenn, and she gathered up a group of her friends to, like, go find Glenn and, like, just jump him. Which, like, I'm not for violence, but I'm for girl power, so I'm kind of on the edge on how I feel about it. But Debbie just said that she never felt comfortable around him. He was just a weird dude who never, like, sat well with her. So in 2003, Glenn was found guilty for Debbie's murder. The jury was hung by one, so he didn't get death. But he got life with, without parole. And at first, Peppy was pretty upset about it because she just didn't didn't want him to live, you know, my daughter died, why, why should you live? But then she really thought about it, and she was like, you know what, this is better, I never have to see his stupid face again, because with, um, with that, the death penalty, she, he would get a bunch of appeals with a lawyer, as we saw with Ron and Dennis, but because he doesn't have that, she doesn't have to see him for anything like that. So she looked at the bright side, and she was happy about it. But she did write him one letter asking why he did it, why he was so evil and vicious about it, just to find answers. And he actually never wrote her back. And when you really think about it, yeah, it sucks you don't have answers for why someone viciously murdered your daughter, but do you really want answers to that question? And do you think your imagination is a better answer than what the actual disgusting truth is. You know, it's just like one of those, like, it's better to have loved and lost than never loved at all. Is it really? Like, if you don't know that pain, if you don't know what you're missing out on, it's catch 2020 or whatever that saying is. Like, it's just, it's hard to know for sure. So unfortunately, Ron was very, very, very messed up after prison. So like I said, he had a mental illness that didn't get treated for 12 years and he just kind of rotted in prison. His brain rotted. But one good thing was he became friends with Peppy. Um, he actually called Peppy and just was like, you know, Peppy, I didn't kill her. He just said, yeah, I know. I know, Ron. And after she said, like, I know you didn't kill him, kill my daughter, he just started talking to her talking about life and after that they just kept calling each other and they became friends so that was I guess one good thing that came out of that horrible horrible thing is that they made a friendship but five years later after he got out of prison he died he was buried on the 22nd anniversary of the last day that Debbie was alive and this is another kind of weird thing so this is in Oklahoma where it doesn't really snow too much, but the day that Ron was buried and the day that Debbie was buried, it snowed. 
And I feel like that's just God intervening, saying, like, horrible things happen. We need to make this new. I need to cover a cleansing blanket of snow over this place, and we need to fix what's going on. So Dennis, um, he actually started teaching again. And he traveled around the states talking about criminal justice, the criminal justice system specifically, and how against the death penalty he was. So he actually wrote a book at some point, too, and lived a pretty good life. He had done that for a while, but at one point he got into a really bad car accident and got a really bad head injury and was no longer able to take care of himself alone. So he ended up moving back to Oklahoma, where he stayed in like a an old folks home that was really close to his daughter. So that's another really sweet thing is that he gets to be with his daughter after all these years. And they're just so sweet together. And you can just see that for every second they're together, they're just trying to make up time for what they lost. So now we're back to Denise, Tommy, and Carl. I wish I had better news, but in between the time I last spoke about them with the resentencing, and now there has been such little movement. Carl, he actually is appealing, and he's been appealing, so he's just doing this one thing, um, one federal appeal, and he isn't really able to speak about the case that much. But the freelan- uh, a freelance reporter ends up contacting Tommy, because she can't also talk to Carl because he's doing his own thing. So she contacted Tommy and was like, I want to help you because something doesn't seem right. And she also contacted the people that did Dennis and Ron's civil case. And that was Cheryl and Dan. Now she is a bad woman, like a good bad. Her name is A.C. Shelton. And she just digs and digs and digs until she finds what she's looking for. She realized that there was a lot of information missing from the other side. I think there was like 800 pages of information and it was like summarized almost into 145 pages, which does not make sense. There's no way you could do that just to summarize it into that little amount. So I believe it was in 2011 or no, in 2009, they had started looking for files and came up short, but then in 2011, somehow, they just, like, magically fell out of nowhere, and luckily, someone was honest and contacted AC to show her, like, hey, here's information, get to work, you know? So she found out that in the Carpenter's original statement, where they say, some guy it was actually changed from Glenn Gore's name. They had seen Glenn Gore fighting with Debbie outside of the coach light at her car. But after later statements, or there was a second statement taken that had no date and no signature, and it was changed to some guy. And that unsigned, undated statement was the one that was used in court. So Glenn... He kind of grew up in, well, obviously he did grow up in Ada, but he grew up with, like, the police officers that were there at the time, and he was in the drug scene. 
So people kind of believed that maybe something was going on there where he was slipping something under the table. And maybe that's why he wasn't investigated. Allegedly. Who knows? But, you know, there's always bad people no matter where you go. You're always going to find a bad person, even in the best scenarios. There's always going to be someone trying to push their way into a situation and just ruin it for everyone. There was a rumor going around that Glenn said that he had to testify a certain way. Otherwise, uh, Bill Peterson was going to plant his fingerprints in the case. So that's why he had to testify a certain way. But honestly, though, like, is that true? Or were your fingerprints already there? Like, come on, dude. Don't even. And guys, I hope you're ready for this piping hot tea. Because the last thing on Glenn Gore is that he had made initial statement before he had made the second one about quote-unquote saving Debbie and I have the statement I'm ready to read it for you guys okay so this is from the official police report yuppie Johnson told Glenn about Debbie at Harold's Club about 7 30 p.m. on December 8 1982 Glenn went to school with Debbie Glenn says about her no Glenn saw her Monday, December 6th, at Harold's Club. Glenn saw her December 8th, 1982, at the coach light. They talked about painting Debbie's car, never said anything to Glenn about any problems with anyone. Glenn went to the coach light about 10 p.m., 10.30 p.m. with Ron, Ron West, a different Ron, left with Ron about 1.15 a.m. the next day, Glenn has never been to Debbie's apartment. Very interesting that you feel the need to throw that in there, but whatever. So that was his initial statement that was never seen in court. Not once. And his second statement, I believe it was the same thing, where it wasn't signed and dated. So, interesting there. But that's enough about Glenn. Let's talk about Billy Charlie, guys. Do you remember the name Billy Charlie? Let me refresh your memory, guys. So the police composite sketch... There were two guys, and the first guy that was called was Billy Charlie, but he had an alibi, so they went to Tommy. Well, AC, in her glorious digging, found statements from people around town saying that this definitely seems like something Billy Charlie could do, and that his alibi was bogus. Apparently, when the APB was put out for that truck that was seen at McNally's um, by, I believe it was Gene, his parents were listening to the police scanner and go, huh, that sounds like Glenn, or Billy's truck. And they specifically remember that because he was not there. Otherwise, they would have been like, that sounds like your truck, blah, 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 blah. But he wasn't there to say that. So he was not with his parents, even though he said, that's my alibi. Billy Charlie is a scary dude. He had a lot of assaults on his record, and one of them was for shooting a frickin' police officer. He is not someone you want to mess around with. Now, there was another person that could potentially look like the other police composite sketch, and his name was Jim Bob Howard. And yes, that was his name, Jim Bob. And the fun thing about Jim Bob is there is... A somewhat kind of confession from him. So this is what the police report says. One night around September tw- 2009, Howard and St- 
Dane or Stan were drinking. Howard had gotten off the telephone from a call from his mother and was sad. Hmm. Stane or Stan said suggested go uh, to go home and visit his mother for a while. Howard said that he could not return to Ada, Oklahoma, because of what he had done there. Howard was very upset and began to cry. He explained that he and two friends had done some robberies in Ada. During those robberies, a young female clerk was shot. His other two friends got in trouble for the murder, but he did not. The night, Stan went to his room and tried to sleep. What Howard said bothered him, so Stan contacted the police the next day. Stan had no no further contact with Howard. So, that's kind of iffy, like, if that actually happened. But, very sus, if you ask me. So, Billy and Jim Bob were actually friends for a long time. And there's actually a story about them that is absolutely messed up. So, I don't remember his name, unfortunately, but he had told the story about how he was drinking at a bar, and Billy and Jim walked up to him, Billy and Jim Bob, and they were like, dude, we're so broke. So you know what this guy does? He reaches into his pocket and gives them both 20 bucks, either because he's a fantastic guy and a great friend, or he was terrified of both of them. But he was like, 20 bucks, each of you guys, like, so $40 total, you guys have fun, enjoy your night. So at the end of the night, and he was thinking it was bar closed because this was a long time ago, um, I believe it was Jim Bob walks up to him, and he's like, hey dude, my car is not starting up, could you take a look at it? And thank God I know nothing about cars and this can never happen to me, because he was like, sure man, let's do it. Walks out of the door of the bar, and Billy Charlie hits him so hard that he was out cold for three days. Three days he was out out. He had brain swelling, and somehow he made it out. And apparently, when they arrested Billy Charlie, he was so infuriated, in a rage, whatever you want to call it, that he kicked the window out of the cop's car. Now, the investigators didn't find any, um, any kind of transcripts or anything like that from Billy um, during this arrest which is absolutely insane. And when I say investigators, I mean um, the investigators with Tommy and Carl at some point. But that doesn't make any sense because it is very known that he was arrested there. It was a long time ago, so like, yeah, I guess this could be something to do with it just a long time ago. But the thing that you don't know is that Billy Charlie sold drugs potentially to corrupt cops, just like Glenn Gore did. Could the same thing be happening in this case as it did in Glenn Gore's case? Doesn't make any sense. The last person that could have potentially had something to do with this case was Floyd DeGraw, another suspect Floyd was arrested four days later in a Texas town. So this was May 2nd, 1818. Gosh, why can't I get this right? 1984 in Texas. So four days later, he was he picked up a girl at a bar and said he was going to take her home. But instead, he took her to the woods and raped her and stole all of her clothes. 
Luckily, he was arrested and he was interrogated for what he had done, which is what is supposed to happen. And there's files for it, which is what is supposed to happen, in case anyone was wondering. He was asked about Denise's case and he would not answer any questions. Anytime it was brought up, he would shut down right away. Now, do you guys remember Gary Rogers, the policeman that was supposed to be like, the Bureau, in the Bureau of Oklahoma or whatever, he never spoke to Floyd about this. He never went to Texas to interrogate him. So Floyd just went to prison in Texas, served his time, and when he got out, he went to his home state in West Virginia and murdered and raped another girl there. Great job, guys. Bang up job, you are doing a great job. Sucks. Gosh. Absolutely disgusting. So Billy Charlie, Floyd DeGraw, and Jim Bob Howard all denied anything to do with it, but, obviously. And this was, like, current day. They all got phone calls. They all denied having anything to do with it. They all were asked to, or given, I should say, given the opportunity to... What? That didn't make any sense. Given the opportunity to clear their name or give an alibi, but they wouldn't do it. They just said, I didn't do it, sucks for the guys that are in there if they didn't do it, but I'm not talking about it. Bill Peterson doesn't apologize for his work as the district attorney, attorney, and he says that he was dealt the cards he was given and showed all the cards to the jury, and they chose to, whatever, convict them the way they did with the cards he was dealt. So he doesn't feel bad about it. Even though you kind of should feel bad about putting the wrong people in prison for that long. Like, even if it wasn't your fault, even if you were just doing your job, you should still feel bad, you know? But going back to what you said, Bill Peterson, about the cards you're dealt, how about we talk about the fact that both Carl and Tommy talked about this white shirt with the little blue flowers that she wasn't wearing. How did both of them come up with that? Well, I can tell you how both of them come up came up with that. When AC did her beautiful digging, she found a statement from Jeanette, who I couldn't find her relation. I'm assuming she was a friend of Denise's. She was brought in and told the investigators that she gave Denise a light colored blouse with little tiny lavender blue flowers on it and she couldn't find it so she was assuming that was the one they were wearing she was wearing that that night the report was wasn't found until like i said ac found it in 2011 oh wait i'm not done yet guys it was found that that report was taken before tommy and carl's confession which i'm sure you guys could guess because you're so smart leading us to the conclusion that Bill Peterson fed the answers in that interrogation is a load of crap. That's so messed up. And I didn't say this in the first episode, but did something sound, I don't know, familiar in both cases? Maybe it was, yeah, Terry. Terry, did that name come up in both cases? Yeah, it did. Guys, the same jailhouse informant for both cases testified basically the exact same thing. So initially it said that Terry was like blackmailed. 
that she was forced to have sex with the officers and it was taped and she was threatened because she didn't want the tape getting out. But that sounds bad for the police officers, not really for the prison inmates. Not that like getting raped isn't good, but it looks horrible for the officers. So that doesn't make any sense to me. What makes sense to me is an officer saying, hey, I'll take time off of this sentence if you say this. And that's exactly what happened. Terry's ex-husband got 40 years off of his prison sentence because she testified, allegedly, a false confession or a false testimony. Now, Terry was like a head of a biker game and sold drugs to, you guessed it, guys, allegedly bad cops. So it's all just one really, really big thing. Now, guys... Here we go. I'm going to give you one other nugget that really is going to hurt you. So Gene was interviewed, and he said that before his lineup, before he picked out the people that he thought he saw at the gas station, in the hallway, he saw Tommy. And then he stepped in, and he picked out Tommy, which is not okay to do. This has torn Gene up for the longest time. Going back, if you guys don't remember, Gene was the one that was sitting in his truck at the gas station waiting for his daughter or his um, nephews to come out, and he saw the people get into the truck. So when he went to that, um, to the lineup or whatever, he saw Tommy and automatically was like, yep, that's him. There we go. Case solved. He didn't realize what he did was wrong. Not necessarily. Okay, it wasn't wrong. He didn't do anything wrong. It was the police officers that did stuff wrong. It's horrible. I don't even know. I don't even know. I can't, I have no words anymore, guys. Like, they're just, everything is messed up. But you know what, guys? There is a light at the end of this tunnel because I have to find it. Um, Once again, in 2019, more case documents were found and released by the police. Then in 2019... In a circuit court judge, um, there was a two-to-one ruling that showed Carl's innocence. So Carl Fontenot is now walking free. And a state judge overturned Tommy's conviction in July 2021. But he's still waiting to hear from the circuit court judge because they said that he should stay in jail while the appeals happen. And I could not find what's happening a year later, but I am just hoping and praying for Tommy that he is out and free because he deserves it and they need to find the right people and put him in jail because those men have suffered in jail and they did not deserve it. So that is the case about Debbie Carter. That's the case about Denise Denise Haraway. That's the case about... Ron Williamson, that's the case about Dennis Fritz, that's the case about Carl Fontenot, and that's the case about Tommy frickin' Ward. And Tommy Ward is one of the sweetest old men now, guys. He is so kind, he is such a good spirit, so I just hope and pray that he is out of jail because he does not deserve to be there. So, thanks for listening. Thanks for bearing with me with my microphone. Thanks for bearing with me with my horrible voice. 
I'm going to go buy a new microphone right now, and I'm going to stop talking for a week so I sound better for my next recording. Thank you guys so much for listening for this long. I hope you guys got something out of this case, and I hope that things get better in that, in that, <laughs> that town, which it seems like it is. I got a lot of my information from the documentary, The Innocent Man, as well as the book, The Innocent Man, which is very similar, like very um, much the same thing, just the documentary was updated. Um, if you guys like the case, like and subscribe, I guess. I think that's something you can do with my podcast. I don't know. Um, if you want to see pictures on the case, go to You Don't Want to Know Podcast on Facebook or um, YDWK Podcast on Instagram. If you have case suggestions or you want to tell me that your voice sounds a little better, just kidding, it doesn't, um, you can email me at ydwkpodcast at gmail.com. Um, I'm still listening, looking for case suggestions or honestly like your own personal stories. If you want to tell me that, that'd be cool. I've always wanted to do that. But once again, thank you for listening. I appreciate you guys. Hope you have a great weekend. Bye!